0: We're going to do a a new kind of a thing here this morning because we've finished our series through the book of Revelation, and we're going to look at an entirely new section. We've got some free time here to kind of go to a different thing. My mic feels a little hot. I don't know if somebody can turn that down. Thank you. Um, We're going to be going to a a new section here, one of the most beautiful and rich passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. So grab a Bible with me, turn to the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians, and if you don't have one. Please raise your hand if you don't have a Bible. We would love to give you one. If you don't want if you don't have one, you want to keep this one, you can totally take it home with you. In that Bible, we're going to pass around here the the book of Colossians chapter 1 is on page 679. Page 679. Now, since we're jumping into a new book, I want to kind of give you a little context of this letter. So the book of Colossians, the letter to the church in Colossae was written by the apostle Paul and his protege Timothy, around 60 to 62 AD. So this is 30 years after Jesus, Paul writes this letter to this new young church. And Paul was in prison, Timothy was helping him, and Paul wrote this letter to a kind of insignificant little town and this little house church in a town called Colossae in modern-day Turkey. Now, these people in Colossae were very spiritual. If we don't know much about the, the city that they lived in, because it was, uh, has never been excavated. The Turkish government hasn't allowed any excavation, so we know where the city is, but we don't know much about their sort of geography and the bits and pieces of the city, but we do know about their spiritual state. And the people of Colossae believed in the gods and goddesses of the Greek and Roman pantheon. They were terrified of offending the spirits and the gods and the unseen powers of the spiritual realm. They were sort of animistic in their view. And the way that they dealt with sort of the danger of the spiritual world and how it could hurt you or harm you, was to appeal to angels and divine beings for protection. They, they practiced rituals and rules, and they'd, they'd do all these elaborate ceremonies to sort of please the spirits. And this was the kind of belief system and culture that the Christians in Colossae came out of. Now, it seems that at this time, about 30 years after Christ, there was this new church, or maybe more than one house church starting in the city, and they were starting to revert back to some of their cult practices, And there was maybe an influential teacher who had kind of led them astray to go back to these rules and rites and rituals. And Paul needed to write to sort of correct, as an apostolic authority, their theology and their practices. Because he knew this. He knew that these believers in Colossae had received Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord, but they had not drawn out the full implications of that for their daily life. When the the pressure came, they started to revert back to their old ways. So, the passage that we're going to look at is this powerful and beautiful reminder of the reality of Jesus' lordship. And Paul takes great care to set them back on a firm foundation. And he does it in a very unique way. We're going to see this as we read this passage. He does it with a song. Now, Paul's not necessarily known for that. He's usually known as the guy who teaches you the facts and the figures and teaches you the deep theology. But here, he knows in this moment where there's something about their heart's attitude to the lordship of Jesus he recites and records a hymn of the early church. Because I I think he knew that there was something about the the way that God created us and wired us to express ourselves with lyric and rhythm and with melody that gets down to a deeper level in your heart. So when he goes uh, and tries to teach them about the lordship of Jesus, he writes a song. And I think there's, there's a, this is maybe the reason why we need to look at this today also. I think that we need to be reminded of the lordship of Jesus and rest again on the supremacy of Jesus and the reality of the hope of the gospel because I think that God wants to do something in your heart this morning with us. So here's a question that I want you to ponder as we dive in. Have you drawn out the full implications of the lordship of Jesus in your life? When, when life gets hard, when things spin out of control, or, or when you get proud because you think you have it all together, do you revert back to your old ways and rely on other saviors like the Colossians did? Think about that. Okay, now think about that as we listen to these words of this song. I'm going to be reading from the NIV. This is Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. It's the word of the Lord. Now, I want to look at this passage in three parts. So we're going to look at it in three different parts. The first is we're going to look at the supremacy of Jesus over creation. Then we're going to look at the supremacy of Jesus over the new creation. And then we're going to look at the challenge to sort of put our hope in Jesus alone. So let's walk in through here the first part. This is verse 15 to 17. So look back at the beginning of that text. Verses 15 to 17. This, these verses in song sort of celebrate the supremacy of Jesus over creation. Now, I want to point out a few important words here. Verse 15 uses these words, image and invisible. Okay, the sun is the image of the invisible God. This is almost a juxtaposition of two different words that mean something opposite. So image is something that's imagined like a mirror. It reflects and shows you the very nature of a real thing. It is, it is portraying something in real life. So the image of something is almost like a reflection in reality. But invisible obviously means something that you can't see. So when these two words are put next to each other, what we see is that Jesus is the visible reflection, sort of the image of an invisible God. He makes the unseen nature and character of an immaterial God a living and breathing reality. He's the image of the invisible God. It emphasizes the deity of Jesus. It is God-made flesh. Okay, not only that, but that first verse says that he's the firstborn over all creation. Now, firstborn is kind of an interesting term, and it doesn't, it's maybe a little difficult for us to understand because it doesn't mean that he was the first thing that God created. Instead, it emphasizes Jesus' sort of a, a ruling sovereignty and his closeness to the Father. So think of the term firstborn in this text as something like firstness or primacy or preeminence or supremacy. He's the first one, he's the most important. He's the firstborn of it. Jesus existed before creation, and so he's supreme over all of it. That's what that's emphasizing. So verse 16, the very next line, says that he created all things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. These words here, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, are the common language in the town of Colossae at the time to talk about good and evil spirits and powers and gods. So remember that context. It's no accident here that Paul rehearses this song of the early church where they, in their own hymn here, declare that Jesus is the creator and Lord of everything in heaven on earth, including the realm of spirits and whatever spiritual things that are invisible that you cannot see. So the Colossians believed that the spirits and gods could unleash natural disasters. They could make them sick. They could destroy their livelihoods. But here, Paul reminds them in very stark terms that Jesus is Lord over all of creation, including all of those things. But don't miss this. It's not enough to just say that Jesus created everything. There's an important feature and a unique claim here. Look at the end of verse 16. Okay, look closely at that with me. It says, all things have been created through him and for him. All things have been created through him and for him. Those two words, through and for, if you're a person who kind of underlines things in your Bible, go ahead and underline those two things. Through and for. They're incredibly important here because everything was created through Jesus, meaning he's the instrument of creation. He's the tool of the mechanism that the triune God uses to create everything. So when I think of that, I can't help but think of the creation scene in the book The Magician's Nephew that C.S. Lewis wrote, part of the Chronicles of Narnia. Anybody read this book, The Magician's Nephew? Okay, good. So a few of you know this book. There is a scene at the beginning or in the middle of this book where the kind of the main, one of the main characters, this boy, is standing in a place of almost utter darkness and he doesn't know where he is. And kind of off in the distance, the... Christ figure in the book, Aslan, who's the lion, he starts to, this boy starts to hear something, and it's the voice of the lion, Aslan, singing. And from his song, as he's walking through the darkness, springs all the material, beautiful, wonderful things of creation. He sings, and there's flowers, and mountains, and trees, and beauty and wonder and creatures and everything material that you can see comes from the song of Jesus, the very instrument of creation. Okay, but we can't stop there either. The word for is just as important. Everything's created through Jesus and for Jesus. This means that the purpose of creation, that's a purpose statement, The purpose of creation is for Jesus. In other words, the entire goal, the entire point of creating everything was for him. He's the end goal of all things that exist. He's the telos of that. He's the end goal. Everything exists for his glory, for his pleasure, for his purposes, and for whatever he wants. Jesus himself is the purpose for which you were created. Now take a minute to try and wrap your mind around that. I think we have to stop here, camp here for a minute. Everything in the universe has a purpose and a goal for existing, and it's a person. That seems sort of illogical. What purpose? Why do I exist? The reason you exist is not for yourself. You don't exist to make money. You don't exist for pleasure. You don't exist for your kids. You don't exist to make your dad happy. You don't exist for your job. You don't exist as a meaningless pawn in the vast scope of history. You exist for a person, and his name is Jesus. And friends, existing for the person of Jesus Christ is the most beautiful and special reason ever to exist. You know why? It's because he made you, because he loves you, and because he desires to know you. That's what happens when you exist for a person. You aren't meaningless, you have a purpose, you have love, you have meaning, and it's the person of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen to that? So we exist for him. Don't take that lightly. Now, verse 17, I just want to finish this first section here. Verse 17 says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things hold together. In other words, Jesus is the reason that there's a cosmos and not chaos. He gives order to everything, and he sustains it. He's the instrument of creation, the purpose of creation, and the sustainer of creation. Every aspect of the created order, top to bottom, beginning to end, relies on him. And sometimes I think we're so proud of our achievements as people, of our mastery over this world, That we forget the reality reality of Jesus' supremacy over creation, top to bottom. We're, we're, We're sort of here in the Bay Area at the very heart of technological achievement. As a human race, we have this drive to put creation under our control. You know, take that and extrapolate that out to the medical field and the advances that they're trying to do. And, you know, even the fact that you've got a smartphone sitting in your pocket that's connected to the entire globe... We have this drive to achieve things as people, but there are moments when we need to get the right perspective around that. Let me give you an example of what that can look like. In the 1960s, NASA engineers developed the Saturn V rocket. The Saturn V rocket was the launch vehicle for the Apollo space program to go to the moon. Now, the Saturn V is still the most powerful machine that human beings have ever created. It stood 363 feet tall, it weighed 6.5 million pounds, it carried a million gallons of rocket fuel, and created 7.5 million pounds of thrust. That doesn't make sense to some people, but that's a lot, okay? (laughs) The most ever. Okay, this was the most complicated and powerful thing a human has ever created. The computing power in that was less than a calculator that we use today. And yet they flew to the moon and landed on it and came back. Blows your mind, blows my mind. OK, so when, even though this is the most complicated and powerful thing we've ever made and the thing that we've ever done as humans, when the Apollo 8 crew was doing a mission to the moon, to fly to the moon for the first time. It's the first time human beings have ever left Earth. And they orbited the moon, I think it was 11 times. The first time human beings have ever laid eyes on the dark side of the moon. This is Christmas Eve, 1968. They did something remarkable at that moment. At this historical moment when human beings first went to another, pl- another place at the pinnacle at the time of human technological advancement and achievement. Astronauts Bill Anders, Jim Lovell, and Frank Borman took turns reading aloud on live television the first 10 verses of the book of Genesis chapter 1. Here they are orbiting the moon for the first time, and they get on live TV, and they start saying these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was good. And they repeat these lines as they're going around and looking at the lunar sunrise for the first time. You see, at a moment where they could have touted the sort of godlike ability of humans to create machines to touch the stars literally, they instead chose to remind all the people back on earth about their creator God and the goodness of his creation. How cool is that? Sort of a similar thing happened on Apollo 11 when they first landed on the moon's surface, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong. Buzz Aldrin, shortly after they landed, took communion in the lunar lander, the lunar module on the surface of the moon. These are these amazing moments where the reality of the lordship of Jesus and the, and the God that we serve as the creator of all things puts our human achievements in proper perspective. And I think this is what we need to hear today from this passage. Jesus is supreme over everything that you can see and everything you can't see. He's supreme over your body. He's supreme over your family, over your house, over the dirt you walk on, over this country, over our solar system, supreme over angels and demons and all things in the unseen spiritual realm. You name it, Jesus made it. It exists for him, and he sustains it. So think about your own life. Remember the question I was posing at the beginning. When you're suffering, when you're anxious, when you're afraid, when you have to have surgery, when your family's broken, when Satan's attacking you, when your life is coming undone, or maybe you're just engulfed in pride about your own achievements, the reality is that Jesus is Lord over everything. There is nothing above him, nothing too powerful for him, nothing outside of his control, nothing he doesn't understand, nothing he can't do. Why would you trust in anything or anyone else? Why look for answers anywhere else? He's the creator. Everything exists for him, and he sustains it all. That's the power of these words and what they teach us. Now, We've been looking here at the supremacy of Jesus over creation. I want to move on to the second part of this passage, which is verses 18 to 20, where Paul talks about the supremacy of Jesus over the new creation. Okay, so let's look at that. Verse 18. Jesus is the head of the church, head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so then everything he might have the supremacy. Look at this wonderful metaphor that he gives us. Jesus is the head Of the body, the church. Now, I love this metaphor because the head gives direction. The head leads the body. Without the head, there's no control over the body. The whole body's dependent on the head to tell it what to do, to guide it in all kinds of functions and situations. So Jesus is not just Lord over creation generally, but He's Lord over His people, the church. But His lordship is a living breathing relationship that's what's beautiful about this metaphor maybe the most important thing about calling Jesus the head of the church is that there's an organic connection between the two there's a relationship that's living and breathing so let me ask you this do you have a living breathing relationship with Jesus I don't mean do you know him Can you tell me facts about Jesus? How about us as a church? Do we as a congregation, as a body, have a living, breathing relationship with the head of this church, Jesus Christ? Maybe this is a good moment to pause and say this. Let me make one thing clear about especially this verse. Jesus is the head of this local church. We depend on him. We trust him. He's Lord over everything here, and especially in a time here where Pastor Andrew's on sabbatical. We need to be reminded that Jesus is the head of this church, and I know that he'd be the first person to say amen to that, right? So let's make sure we're on the same page in this moment as we go ahead as a congregation that the only source of life, the only leader of this church is Jesus himself. And we have to pursue, as a church, a living, breathing relationship with the head of our church as his body. Now, as I read a moment ago, this this verse 18 also talks about him being the firstborn from among the dead. There's that word again. Remember in verse 15, we saw that word firstborn? He's the firstborn over creation. This now says he's the firstborn from among the dead. So he is the firstborn to be resurrected. That's what that means. Jesus is the first to be resurrected. He's the first to become a new creation. He's the pioneer and the establisher of a new humanity. He's supreme as the one who initiates a new creation, just as he's supreme as the one who initiated the old creation. Do you see the connection there, the parallel? At the first section that we looked at a few minutes ago, Jesus is supreme over creation because he did it. He's the instrument, it exists for him. He sustains it. And now he's the firstborn over the new creation, what you and I are called into, being the new humanity. He's the one who pioneers it, he's the one who achieved it. He's the firstborn from among the dead, just as we follow him. So you see, what's interesting here is as we look through this section, talking about this new creation, Verse 19 talks about how he is the fullness of God dwelling in Jesus, that he's the only one who can achieve our salvation and make a new creation because of that. So let me make something clear out of this section. Jesus' supremacy over creation, his supremacy as the pioneer of the resurrection and the fact that he has the fullness of God dwelling in him, that he is God, makes him able to reconcile all things in heaven and earth. Who could ever do that but the one who is supreme over all things? How could you make peace and reconcile all things if you do not have lordship over them? He is God and he is human. He is able to recreate humanity as a participant and a full sharer in our humanness. But he is Lord over creation and able to save us because he's God. He has to be both. He is both. The only reason that Jesus has the ability to create real and lasting reconciliation and peace for all of creation is because He's the one who created and sustains it all. He alone has the power and authority to solve our dilemma the sin curse, our mistakes and sin and rebellion. We're stuck in a place where we can't help ourselves. It's simple logic here. Because we live stained with sin and because we're contributors to our own rebellion, because of our own choices, because of the the nature of who we are, we cannot save ourselves. Only someone outside of the curse of sin, over and above creation, someone who's Lord over everything can reach in and fix that mess. That's the crux of the incarnation of Jesus. It's God himself coming down to save us. So this is the heart of the gospel, friends. Jesus achieved peace, which is this last verse here, verse 20 of this song. He achieved peace, the idea of shalom, of rightness, of things being right finally, by dying on the cross and shedding his blood. See, as the creator, the goal of creation, the sustainer of creation and the fullness of God, he is able to die as a perfect sacrifice and achieve supremacy over death by rising from the grave. And this is where Paul turns to challenge the church in Colossae, and I think challenge us. Look at verses 21 to 23. This is that third section that I wanted to look at. The challenge to hope only in Jesus, verses 21 to 23. Here Paul moves, and this is sort of the end of the quote of a hymn. And now verse 21, he goes on to challenge the people here. He makes a direct plea to this small church in Colossae, and he reminds them where they came from. Look at the language here. You were once alienated, you were estranged from God, you used to be separated. There used to be a wall in place. These Christians used to be out of God's family, they were enemies because of their evil behavior. In other words, how you live and who your Lord is actually matters. What you've done matters. Your behavior actually incriminates you and makes you an enemy of God. Do you see that? But here's the good news. There's so many times in the New Testament there are verses talking about the gospel that start with the word but. Verse 22, at least in the NIV. But now he has reconciled you. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. It is achieved by God through the physical death of Jesus. This is hugely important. Your physical and real sin is made right by the physical and real death of Jesus. The actual harm that you have done in this material world must be dealt with by a material reconciliation. Do you see what's going on here? God can't just wave his hand and say, I forgive you. He doesn't do that. There has to be a material payment for your material sins. Your sins deserve death, and so your reconciliation is not achieved without death. And the result is so Profound. The end of verse 22. God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you, in other words, in order to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. That's amazing. The purpose of reconciliation is this that you would stand before God perfect, holy clean, without blemish, and innocent, free of accusation. Don't miss the reality of this verse. Paul is making an incredibly bold statement here. He is telling us that the goal of reconciliation to God is to make us holy, clean, and innocent. And he's telling us, in reverse, if you look at this sort of in a negative sense, that our alienation from God means that apart from Jesus, We are unholy, dirty, blemished, and guilty. Do you grasp the gravity of that? Without Jesus, we're all stained by sin and guilty of sin. But Jesus has done something to change that. He has achieved our our, our redemption. By his death, things are made right. Think about the situation of the Colossian church again. They're being told by false teachers, by, by, by people in their community when things have gotten crazy around them, they feel that they're vulnerable to the dangers of the spiritual realm, and the only way to protect themselves was to do certain rites and rituals and practices and superstitious habits and whatever it was back like they used to when they were in that pagan cult they were in in their city. They thought that they could cover up the vulnerability to the spiritual world that they had by doing the right things. And I think we do the same thing today. Now, you might say, I don't believe there's a God under every rock kind of a mentality, right? But I think somehow deep down, even though we're in a sort of a different spiritual you know, uh, uh, framework, somehow deep down we all feel a sense of, of, of vulnerability or of, uh, of lostness, of, of something that's not right in that deepest sense. We sense intuitively our blemishes. We know we've made mistakes. We have fears, and we have things that we can't control. You dig down in that heart of yours, and no matter what sort of things you've put over the surface there to try and make yourself deal with life every day, you know that you are dirty and guilty. And we have an instinct to protect ourselves against exposing those things that are wrong in us. We want to cover them up. We want to pacify our fears. We want to protect ourselves. We want to find salvation by having control over our lives. And I want to know where your heart is with this. Because Paul challenges us with a very simple message here. He ends this section of this challenge to the church in verse 23 with this statement. If you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move out or moved from the hope held out in the gospel. He gives us a condition here. If you continue, he's saying that your presentation before God as holy and without blemish and free of accusation is contingent in some way on your holding on to the hope of the gospel. But the language that he uses is unique, so don't miss this, all right? It's hard to see sometimes in English, but what he's saying here is if you continue in your faith, and I know that you're going to, and I trust that you will, he gives this sort of positive, encouraging piece behind that. He's not trying to draw a line in the sand and say, hey, here's another thing you need to do in order to be made right. He's saying, I know that you guys trust in Jesus alone, so keep going. Keep going. Keep going. He knows that they are going to, he, he, he longs, he desires for them to remain firm on the foundation of Jesus' work on the cross because he knows this. The point of, of the hope of the gospel is that you cannot save yourself. Jesus did it. Your reconciliation is done because Jesus already died and he already rose again. You can't do anything more because nothing needs to be done. It's done. We have to trust in Jesus alone. So if you don't hold on to the truth of Jesus' work on your behalf, then you cannot stand before God as holy and without blemish and free of accusation. It's only by Jesus. But remember the question that I asked you earlier this morning. This passage so focuses in on the lordship of Jesus Have you drawn out the full implications of the lordship of Jesus in your life? When you might be sitting here thinking, things are hard right now. Things are out of control. Or I'm afraid. Or maybe you're sitting here thinking, I I feel pretty good about where I'm at. I'm doing all right. Those are these moments where I think we, when when the pressure's on, sometimes we we will take a step back and revert to the things that make us feel comfortable and that we're able to control and the things that, that help us to feel good about where we are. Each of us have saviors and old habits of dealing with the mess of life, with our mistakes and with the feeling that we're actually lost and things are out of control. You see, I think the people of Colossae were experiencing the same kinds of anxieties, the same kinds of illness. They're dealing with, with uh, fears for their families, with the, the kinds of desires for peace and protection that we all have experienced throughout human history. There's not really that sort of a difference in quality of what they were experiencing day to day to what we do. But here in the Bay Area, we're so affluent, so self-sustaining, so insulated, I think that we feel in some way that we've risen above the sort of uh, animistic, ancient culture that was so reliant on the spiritual realm for their daily life. But what happens when things fall apart, when your Tower of Babel starts crumbling down, when... when when your anxiety level goes through the roof, when you're trusting in yourself or in other things to deliver and save you, I think the point is this. If I read this passage, this is how I think when I read this. I can see myself in that church in Colossae. Can you? I can see myself in this situation. When I'm afraid... When I feel the pressure to succeed, when I, when I feel the weight of providing for my family, or when I feel this little kingdom and this like achievements that I've done for myself start to, 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 to crumble down or don't seem like they're even making an impact or that, or they're that important. When, I, when things get hard and I try and figure out how am I going to fight that battle, what am I going to do today in order to deal with everything that's going on, I see myself like these people in Colossae. Are, are, when, when things get tough, I tend to revert back to the things that I can do and I can control. I tend to trust in a hundred other things and I look for advice from a hundred other people before I turn to Jesus. I make, you know how I do this? I make lists and I make plans, and I go, you know what, if I can't control the next three months, I'm gonna pull my calendar out, and I'm gonna grab control of that thing. Or if I don't know what I'm doing this week, I'm gonna make a list, because then I can control something at least. At least I can check something off. (laughs) I'm just relying on myself. Maybe you approach this in a completely different way than I do, but what about you? When you dig down, what do you actually rely on? Who do you actually trust? Where do you run to first? I think this passage makes us grapple with the reality of the lordship of Jesus. Because when you, think about, when you think about your life, you have to ask yourself, are you living each day in the truth and the reality of the lordship of Jesus over everything? Do you live each day with the truth that Jesus is the creator, the purpose for your life, and the sustainer of everything? Do you live each day in the truth that the reconciliation that is achieved is totally a work of Jesus and the only way to real peace is by his blood that was shed? Do you beat yourself up or do you trust that Jesus is beat up for you? Do you completely or wholly rely on Jesus' finished work on the cross to make you clean, to make you, to remove the blemishes of your sin and to take away your guilt? Or do you trust in yourself to do that? Think about this, really. Because here's the reality that this song teaches us. Jesus is supreme. He is the first. He is the one who made everything and everything exists for him. You exist for him. And he wants you to come to him. It's a powerful word from this passage. And we're going to take some time this morning to respond to that. Um, Let me just close us with a word of prayer here. And then Pastor Dante is going to lead us through that time of response. Let me pray. Lord, we want to receive the word that you have given us from this passage. That Jesus, you are supreme over all. You created everything. Everything was made through you and it exists for you and that includes me that includes everyone in this room that includes everything that we've ever done and will do lord you are the supreme over all of it Jesus we want to we want to have that truth break into our hearts in a fresh way this morning of of, of seeing the reality of your lordship in every area of our life. And if there's an area that that has not broken into yet, Lord, expose that this morning. Lord, when when things get when life gets hard, when life is great, and everywhere in between, Lord, when we take these, these moments where we start to, 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 to look to other things as saviors and to rely on other things, even ourselves, Lord, Teach us about the lordship of Jesus. We ask and we beg, Lord, this morning that you would do something powerful in our hearts as we grapple with this truth, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.